Mark 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, even with a chain. For he had often been bound with fetters and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the fetters he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him eagerly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, Send us to the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them leave. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the man who had had the legion. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their neighborhood. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all men marveled. The most important event that has ever happened since the creation of the world is the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, into the earth. Therefore, the most important thing that anybody can know is why he came. If Christ, the creator, is also the sustainer, and the ruler of this world, as the scripture says he is. And if his purpose in coming into the world is not yet complete, and if that mission that God gave him in coming into the world has now been given by him to the church, then there is no knowledge that any individual can have nor any vision that any church can have that is more important than the knowledge of why he came. Therefore, the Bible, under the inspiration of God, is crystal clear on why he came. For example, Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. First Timothy 1.15 It is a faithful and sure saying, Christ Jesus 
came into the world to save sinners. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Romans 15, 8 and 9. Christ became the servant to the Jewish people in order to confirm God's truthfulness and to confirm his promises in order that the Gentiles might glorify him for his mercy. And that last verse is especially important because Paul goes on in Romans 15, 9 to 12 to spin out four Old Testament book references to show that the purpose that God gave the Son in the Incarnation is an old-timey purpose that he had for Israel all along. First of all, he quotes from 2 Samuel, and he says, I will praise you among the nations. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy 32:43, Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Then he quotes from Psalm 117:1, Praise the Lord, all nations, let all the peoples praise him. And then finally, a great text that brings the Messiah and the purpose together, Isaiah 11:10, The root of Jesse shall come, he who rises to rule the nations, in him shall all the nations hope. The point of those Old Testament quotations is that God's purpose in dealing with Israel has always been more than Israel. It's always been through the coming Messiah to reach to the nations, all the nations. Therefore, when God sent Christ into the world, the purpose was not only to confirm his promises to Israel, but to cause the nations to glorify him for his Mercy. So, why did the most important event in history happen? It happened so that all the nations, the Aborigines of Australia, the Gola of Liberia, the Yambasa of Cameroon, the Gypsies of Yugoslavia, the Hispanic and Lao and Ojibwe and whites of Minnesota, that all the peoples might glorify God for his mercy, or to use the words of Habakkuk, that the knowledge of the glory of God might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The purpose of Christ's coming is that all the peoples of the earth might glorify God for his mercy. But what's that mercy? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the mercy. And therefore, putting it all together, here's the way to state it. God sent his son into the world to save sinners from every nation so that they might glorify God for the mercy given to them in salvation. That's a truth from Scripture that I regard as beyond question and crystal clear. And there's another truth that is just as sure 
and just as clear. The purpose given to the Son by the Father to seek and save the lost isn't complete. There are hundreds of peoples on the earth to whom salvation has not been preached. And there are thousands more peoples on the face of the earth among whom the witness is faint. And the band of believers, if existing at all, is so small that salvation is not sounded forth among the peoples. Every year since 1979, Mark, Missions Advanced Research Communication Center of World Vision, has published a book listing unreached peoples. It's called Unreached Peoples. I bought 1982 because it's urban peoples. Every year, a whole book in small print on unreached peoples for the last four or five years. The job that the Father gave to the Son isn't complete. There's a third truth that's just as clear and undisputable. The mission that the Father gave to the Son, the Son has given to the church. John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Is it clear that the mission to seek and save the lost, which was given to the Son by the Father when he sent him to this planet, has been given by the Son to the church to finish? Now, there are two objections that I can think of that have been historically raised to that third truth. And I want to raise them and answer them because they're not hard to answer from Scripture. Number one, how do you know, Piper, that the words go and make disciples of all nations were not simply intended for the apostles to whom they were addressed? And that when they'd reached as far as they could reach, that was it. That was the fulfillment. Here's how I know that that's not what Jesus meant. The promise in Matthew 28:20, which undergirds the commission, says, I will be with you to the close of the age. Now, this age is still going on. The apostles are dead and gone. Who then is the you that Jesus will be with to the end of the age to enable them to make disciples? It's the church. So the you in this commission and in this promise which undergirds it cannot be limited to the apostles. It is a promise given to you and me, and therefore the commission that it supports is ours. Here's another objection. No, Piper, you've almost got it, but not quite. The mission that Christ hands over is not handed over to all the people. It's handed over to the clergy. 
It's handed over to vocational Christian missionaries who are called out from the people of God. Those are the ones to whom the commission to seek and save the lost is passed. There are two reasons why that cannot be the case. One is simply an argument from experience. It is unthinkable that the cause for which Christ came, lived, suffered, and died should not be the cause for which you live if you love Christ. It is psychologically impossible that you should take no interest in supporting and pursuing and engaging in that for which he died. That's response number one. Number two comes from the scriptures. 1 Peter 2.9. In that verse, Peter addresses the whole church and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then just a few verses later, to bring it right down into the nitty-gritty of our behavior, he says to that same church, us, maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The objections will not stand. When the Son of God finished his life and saw before him an unreached world, he took the mission that the Father had given him and he gave it to you and me. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Means the unfinished mission of Jesus Christ to seek and save the lost is our mission at Bethlehem. Not just the apostles, not just the clergies. Three truths that are clear, I think beyond dispute, leading to an inevitable conclusion. Let me rehearse the truths once more, then I'll tell you the conclusion that I draw. Truth number one, God sent his son into the world to seek and to save sinners in every nation so that people redeemed from every tongue and tribe and nation would glorify him for his mercy. Truth number two, the mission on which the father sent the son is not Finished. Truth number three. Jesus gave to the church the mission that the Father gave to him. Conclusion. Strategies and actions to seek and save the lost, especially those beyond the ordinary reach of the gospel, must have high priority in our life together at Bethlehem. Now, let me take this priority and put it in the context of the last two Sundays' messages and then close with some practical suggestions for how we can be about Jesus' mission. For the past three weeks, we have been unfolding and supporting 
biblical priorities of ministry to guide and measure our success at Bethlehem. Number one, on the first Sunday of the year, go hard after the Holy God. He's number one. Number two, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. Meet together in groups small enough so that you can give and take personal biblical exhortation to strengthen faith and stir you up to love and good works. And priority number three today. Turn out from those groups, from that worship, and seek to save the lost. You can test your spiritual growth and maturity by how you measure up in each of those areas. Are you going hard after God in meditation and prayer and corporate worship? Some of you were not going hard after God during the prelude. I urge you, Use Leah's prelude to go for God. Don't talk to each other. Please. There are people around you who want to go for God. And then our fellowship will be powerful and deep after the service. Are you meeting together in a group small enough? To exhort each other every day as long as it is called today and stir each other's faith up. Three, are you planning and pursuing a personal strategy to seek and save the lost for the glory of God? I regard it now as extremely important to ask how these three priorities relate to each other. And that's what I want to talk about before I give the practical Comments. In a sense, worship to God, nurture to the family of God, witness to the world, all intensify and advance each other when we advance in any one of them. For example, the deeper your adoration of God in worship, the more precious will be the gathering with His people. And the more compelling will be his mission to seek his glory in the world. Or another example. The more you give and receive biblical or exhortation to one another on a day-to-day basis and in small groups. The more you will be built up in your zeal for the glory of God. Priority one. And the more you will be emboldened with courage to venture out in priority three. Witness to the world. And a third illustration. The more you break out of your comfort zones to strategize and fight to liberate people from Satan's captivity on the front lines, the more you will be driven back to seek healing and help from fellow believers. And the more you will delight in God as you see his power manifest in your life in new and powerful ways. They all work together to build themselves into your lives. But if I stopped there, I would not have said the most important thing about how they relate to each other. 
Because the most important thing is that priority number one, adoring God and going hard after God in corporate worship and in personal life is the starting point and the ending point of all the priorities. Tom said it so well in his prayer when he prayed that God would be our all-consuming priority. It is love for God, is it not, that enables us to get together in small groups as believers? But wouldn't those groups be failures if they didn't also lead us into a deeper and higher love for God? So God is the beginning point and He's the ending point of small group life. Same thing is true of witness and missions. We would never undertake Christian witness and global missions if we had not been gripped by the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ forgiving us for our sins and calling us to delight in His mercy. We wouldn't even get started. So it's the beginning point. But what's the goal of foreign missions and home witness? What's the goal? To seek and to save the lost, right? But the driving motivation for witness and missions is not fully known until we say with Paul in Romans 15:9 that Christ is doing it that the mercy of God might be glorified. He is the starting point and he is the ending point of all Christian witness and missions. But now, I don't want to make the mistake, listen carefully, please, I don't want to make the mistake of creating the impression that a love for the glory of God and a love for the salvation of men are at odds in the least or even are ranked like this. What happens, think for a moment, what happens when a a lost person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Objectively, it means that that person is transferred from death into eternal life. They are transferred from condemnation under God to justification before God. They are moved out of alienation into reconciliation with God. That's the objective reality of that person's life. But subjectively... What goes on inside, a new heart is given. And the old heart that is taken out is a heart that relies on itself or good works or idols or worldly pleasures. And it is given a new heart. And the new heart is characterized by reliance on God and a delight in the glory of God, no longer glorying in self, glorying in the cross and in the grace of Christ. Now, do you see what that implies about the, the goal of mission and witness? On the one hand, we long to see men saved. On the other hand, we long to see God glorified. But because salvation means the creation of a new creature who lives for the glory of God, the pursuit of the salvation of the lost and the pursuit of the glory of God are not two pursuits. One is not even the means to the other. They are one. 
if you understand what salvation really is. If you love people, you will want for them nothing more than that they delight in glorifying God for all eternity. And if you love the glory of God, you will want nothing more for it than that it be magnified in the praises of a redeemed people. Now let me draw things to a close with some practical suggestions for how we can go about fulfilling priority three, individually and then corporately as a church. Number one, pursue the fire. Pursue the fire. Every Christian, isn't this true? Every Christian has tasted the fire of adventure in your life. Maybe back when you were little and you dreamed of becoming a policeman or a fireman or a nurse or a doctor, something that just filled you with excitement. And even today, some of you taste every now and then another kind of life than the petty life you may feel that you're living. And my comment is, Satan hates that fire. And he turns his hell hoses on it all day long, every day, putting out the fires of your sense of adventure with God in mission. Therefore, my first statement is pursue it. Fan the flames of that desire. It may mean getting up in the middle of the night like Tom did a couple of months ago and listening to an album of John Michael Talbot sing about the nations worshiping God. It may mean joining me and reading The Crest of the Wave by Peter Wagner like I did a few weeks ago or reading like I am now In the Gap by David Bryant or joining with your wife like Noel and I do every night that I'm home when we read five pages from, from Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. Or it might mean getting a great biography like this one that I just finished a few weeks ago. Or it might mean writing to the U.S. Center for World Mission and getting this big fat tome by Ralph Winter in which there are so many life-changing essays it'll just blow your mind away. It might mean going to Urbana 84. I hope we can send 40 people to Urbana this December. It might mean going to the ACMC annual meeting come this summer. I don't know what it is. You know. You have learned from experience, haven't you, how to fan the flames of the fire of excitement for mission in your life? Do it. Whatever it is, do it. God touched us last November. That was a watershed in the life of Bethlehem, our missionary conference last November. Tom will never be the same. I will never be the same. And I hope Bethlehem will never be the same. Reading, praying, fasting to keep the fire hot is my agenda. And I commend to you, I urge you, join me in building fasting into your life for missions. Here's why. I have found nothing else that can enable me to keep a wartime mentality. I am always dropping back into a peacetime mentality that all's well with the world. And the world is going to hell by the thousands. And the only way I have found to keep a wartime mentality is to fight food. I commend it to you. Second, plan your personal strategy. We are all different 
Everybody in this room has inferiorities and superiorities to other people, and those are not accidents. You exist in your peculiarity because you can do something in the cause of witness and mission nobody else can do. I could illustrate to you for an hour people I cannot touch that you can touch. Pursue the unique you in this cause of world mission. Don't fit anybody else's mold. Don't copy me. Don't copy Tom. Don't copy these books. Find your niche because God made you unique for your unique contribution to witness and mission. But it won't happen unless you plan. There's where we fall. We don't plan. We don't take little mini retreats now and then to plan how our lives can be invested in this third priority. For example, we need to get away periodically and pose ourselves this question and do a survey of our lives. We need to say, how should my commitment to priority three affect what I wear and buy, what I eat, what I do for recreation, what I read, what I watch on television, where I buy my house, what job I pursue and take, what groups I belong to, how I pray for my children, which direction I walk to the store. Planning your life as strategic investment in your little niche of the world to advance the mission of Christ to seek and save the lost is tremendously important. Streamlining and strategizing how the unique you can be invested in mission and witness will give a vision to your life that is so great it will change everything. Now, I'm sure some of you are saying right now, Pastor, if you knew the mess my life were in, how can you call me to get out there on the front lines when what you need is to carry me off to the infirmary? I am a basket case spiritually. My home is a mess. You don't know what we go through at home. You're telling me to be a missionary? Sound familiar? Well, you're right. You're right. Maybe I do need to carry you to the infirmary. And I want to say, I believe in priority number two with all my heart. That is the infirmary of small groups to heal, to nurture, to help in all those areas. But I got something else I want to suggest as a therapy today. Something you may not have thought about, but the more I think about it, the more helpful it becomes in my life and maybe yours. Could it be that part of the reason why your individual life seems like a basket case and your home life is a mess is because you don't have a cause big enough to live for. You don't have a noble adventure to devote yourself to. You go through your daily routine and hate it. It all seems so unimportant in terms of what really counts. And so you're frustrated. Then you get guilty. Then you get fears. Then you get irritated. And it's a downward spiral at home 
of meaningless and petty problems with everybody. Could it be that the infirmary you need is the front lines? Not everybody, but that is the solution for some of you. I know it is, because I have seen it work at least two times in my life at crucial points where everything was falling apart. There are some personal and family problems that don't get solved head on, but they get solved as you turn to a mission and they dissolve while you're not looking. It has happened. I've seen it again and again. I really believe that the more that, that more family and personal problems than you can imagine will be healed as we turn outward from ourselves and from our families in the greatest cause in the world. Pursue the fire. Plan your personal strategy. Third, participate in some group devoted to outreach or missions. My hope is that the upshot of last week's and this week's message will be that there will be spontaneous small groups starting among many of you which have a dual focus of therapy or infirmary and front lines or mission and witness. Pursue the fire, plan your personal strategy, participate in some group focused on outreach, and fourth, perform some specific act to put yourself in touch with unbelievers. Most of us are far too out of touch with the, with the world, with unbelievers. For example, invite neighbors into your house for dessert. Show them a new Christmas present you got. Play a game. Option. Great new game. Noel and I love it. Uh, watch for needs in your neighborhood and meet them. Read some simple books on basic Christian doctrine. And then when you get an opportunity, say, here's a book I just read. It's so exciting. And give it to them. Play racquetball at the Y. Same time. Every week. Build that pattern so that people know you're there. And talk to them in the locker room. Eat lunch with different colleagues at work. Do some volunteer work in the community. There are hundreds of ways to strategically and creatively bring your lives into contact with unbelievers. And if you seek which ones of those fit you uniquely and then pray in the morning. It's a scary prayer sometimes. Oh Lord, make it happen today. You will be amazed how Jesus is still in the business of seeking and saving the lost through you. I close with one last summons to you. This one isn't a personal one so much as a corporate one. I want you to join with me in praying and pursuing a dream for Bethlehem that I think is already coming true. I'm convinced that Bethlehem should and will have a uniquely strategic role to play in leadership building for the cause of missions in the Baptist General Conference and beyond. You're probably wondering what happened to that text that was read at the beginning. Well, here it is. Jesus had a strategy for the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a cluster of Gentile cities across the Sea of Galilee. No witness to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus and his disciples, according to Matthew 10 and 15, devote themselves almost entirely to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
82 of them. He has a heart for the Decapolis. So what does he do? He thinks, I will make one trip. And I will make one missionary. He crosses the sea and he finds himself a demoniac. And he heals him. And when that demoniac commits himself to follow Jesus, Jesus says, in effect, no, don't follow me to Judea and Galilee. There are 82 Jews evangelizing the Jews. You are a Gerasene. Go to the Gerasenes. There is no witness among the Gerasenes. That text is usually preached on to argue for staying at home. Go home. And tell people what they've done for you. That text is an argument for frontier missions. Go where there aren't 82 already. Given the way I have felt since November about the awful inequity between the number of Christian witnesses and leaders in America and in the third world, I could not remain pastor of this church if I did not believe that I could do what Jesus did for the garrison and for the Decapolis. If I did not believe that because of my ministry here over the next decade, there would be built hundreds of leaders in missions and in the church for the Baptist General Conference and other foreign mission agencies, I would resign, I would write to seminaries in Nigeria or Philippines and ask if they could use a teacher of theology so that I could be in a place where there aren't 82,000 preachers already. 